Okay, so here we are again. Welcome to episode six of the I Care Education podcast. And we've got a very special guest this week. We have Elaine Stiles from Vision Care for Homeless People. So good afternoon to you, Elaine. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Yeah. Excellent. So I suppose first of all, I'll let Elaine introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her background, how you got into optics and how you got to where you are today with Vision vision Care for Homeless People. So my name's Elaine Stiles, I'm an optometrist and I've been qualified since 93, I think. Um, Basically, um, um, I currently spend my time sort of three different things. I do part-time in the contact lens department at Moorfields. Um, I also work in high street practice and then I'm the chair of Vision Care for Homeless People. So um, I originally got into working with homeless people back in 97. I saw a small advert in um, an optical journal looking for um, sort of volunteers for the crisis Christmas. So I um, answered the advert and I went along, did a couple of shifts and basically I was hooked. I mean, you met some sort of really um, sort of interesting people and it was just um, really enjoyable. So the next year I sort of um, dragged a few friends along and then sort of the following year I ended up sort of taking over sort of the organisation of the service. So up until... um, I started volunteering it was run by an optometrist who just ran it as part of his domiciliary service so um, the difficulty we had is that he was only um, sort of seeing people who were actually eligible for sort of the normal GOS services and basically um, sort of that didn't sort of quite fit with the way that crisis wanted to be all inclusive so when um, sort of I took over the services we ended up changing it that we would see absolutely anybody who um, wanted or needed an eye examination so we just expanded the service out to whoever um, sort of had that need okay so yeah so is that is that when it's became a registered charity under the current No, um, basically that was just in the very starting. Uh, we carried on doing just the Christmas up until sort of 2002 was the last year we did just Christmas. And then I was approached by another optometrist, um, Harinda Paul, who was interested in setting up something throughout the year. And then with two others, so four optometrists, we got together and started um, Vision Care for Homeless People. So what we did from there is that we would sort of one week um, through the month each, we would all um, sort of test in the Crisis Skylight um, Centre near Liverpool Street mm-hmm. and on a rotor going through. Um, we ran that for a few years as a not-for-profit company because we approached Charity Commission who said they wanted to see whether there was a need for it and there obviously right. was. So then in 2007, um, we got charity status. So we basically went through the application process and then from there, we just sort of gently started expanding the service. Okay. So how, how many clinics do you have now? Nationwide. Currently we have eight. So we have three in London and then we've got Brighton, Birmingham, Manchester, Exeter and Leeds. And we see um, sort of probably about sort of, I think it's about 1800 people a year at the moment. Um, wow. Well, up until sort of um, sort of March time, um, we were sort of um, how we had all those clinics busy. And we also have another sort of um, another clinic in the pipeline which is in Stratford in East London and we're also investigating other um, sort of locations as well. Okay so how, how does it how does it work with regards to setting up a new location? Is it almost like an optum will take control of an area and, and almost take on on the the brand for want of a better word? Yeah I mean generally the clinics we've had so far is actually what we look to do is sort of um, it's Um, looking for a team of people Um, we have in the past tried to set it up where sort of one particular person is sort of interested in sort of running a clinic but we found that I mean people's circumstances change and things like that so what we need is actually a team so one of the newest ones we set up um, a couple of years ago was um, a clinic in Leeds and we have a really amazing team there that actually um, sort of run the clinic uh, basically between them so that's a mixture of optometrists dispensers um, clinical assistants and also um, we have lay people that get involved as well who help with administration fundraising 
fundraising and things like that. So I think the core of it is actually finding the team that are interested and actually running that clinic. Then going from there, when we've got the team together, we look at the um, homeless centres around who potentially are interested and also that have space and time for us to fit in with their um, timetable because often the homeless centers have actually got quite a busy rotor of um, other services coming in so we particularly like it when we can be part of a holistic approach for sort of general health care so yeah. in most of the centers we have um, we also link in with sort of like um, <clears throat> medical podiatry um, sort of nursing services mental health things like that so we can inter-refer between us yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so all the clinics are run currently through uh, existing homeless shelters and homeless charities in that sense. So you've got that support group within the, within there as well for you. Yeah, So how does it actually work for, for, the, for the homeless person then who, who wants to come along and have an eye test? What's the actual process for them? So basically for them, they just need to walk in and use our services. So I was saying all our um, clinics currently are within sort of like homeless organisations. So it's a mixture of things like Crisis, um, St Mungo's, um, West London Mission, um, George's Crypt Leeds, um, sort of um, Cypher Fireside in Birmingham. So they're all actually within homeless centres and the majority of those are actually day centres. So with a day centre, someone can be coming in to access services. So it might be that they're coming in to sort of get a meal, to have a shower, do some laundry, um, access mental health um, support services, um, sort of financial advice with sort of benefits, accommodation, things like that. So they're already coming into those services. So what we try and do is to tap into that and sort of make it part of their um, sort of um, um, rehabilitation in a way, just sort of like getting another sort of um, thing. So basically getting their eyes tested and replacing or sort of giving them new glasses so that they can actually see what they're doing. Um, apply for accommodation and applications for forms and things like that because probably about sort of 40 percent of the people we see just simply need something like a pair of reading glasses so because they can't read um, sort of application forms and things like that yeah definitely I mean it's, it's one of those things you, you you see a lot of support for homeless people in terms of wanting to encourage them into back into society and into applications for various things but it's often overlooked that they actually need yeah, there could be a refractive error that could just need a pair of reading glasses to be able to, to go ahead and do that. And again, if they want to get into work and all that kind of stuff and become rehabilitated, you do need to be able to see, don't you? So, you know, it's an important service in that sense. So how, how does it work in terms of funding for the, for the actual patient? Because as you mentioned before, when it was originally started, it was mainly seeing people who were eligible under the GOS system. So how, how does that work nowadays? Is, is it still a similar criteria? Can you still claim NHS contribution or is it all free at the point of service? So basically yes definitely free at the point of service for anyone that comes to use our services. Um, what we do is the same as an optical practice we will register with um, the um, local area team so basically um, we go through all the normal um, sort of application for um, um, basically a mandatory service contract as a practice would do so we have to go through all those sort of normal sort of systems and things like that so the whole process of application and anyone that comes to us who is eligible for um, GOS services we can then claim that um, um, that voucher back so we probably find that um, the percentage unfortunately over time has reduced I think very much originally when we sort of started off and there was just literally the four of us running sort of once a week probably about 50-60% of the people we were seeing were eligible for GOS services so when it was purely a volunteer-led organisation with no other expenses other than dispensing administration and things like that it was actually self-funding but then as we've gradually increased the number of clinics that we have unfortunately we now need to look for sort of external sort of funding sources so probably currently I think it's only about sort of um there's only about sort of 15, 20 percent, I think, of the people we see. And some centres do vary. So, for example, um, at Crisis Skylight, 
we tend to be um, working with people who are sort of getting that next rung up on the ladder. So they right. possibly have already got into accommodation and they are now looking for sort of work or they're doing training courses and things like that. So they're probably or majority of those we tend to find probably about 60% of those might be on benefits. Whereas when we go to some of the other centres, um, we're working with people who are literally just sort of coming in off the street. And there we may only find that about 10% of people of those are um, eligible for benefits. And that might be sort of people who are over 60 or diabetic or family history of glaucoma, things like that, because they haven't actually got through that sort of administration loop of that hoop of actually um, getting themselves registered for benefits yet because they are literally just coming in off the street. So it varies greatly. But if they are eligible, we claim the vouchers and that goes towards funding. If they aren't eligible for NHS, we do exactly the same service, full eye examination, um, spectacle dispensing, and then um, we provide that. So basically it's like having a private eye examination funded by the charity. Yeah, yeah. I think whenever we, so we, we run CET workshops based on, on Vision Cape Homeless People, and I think there's, there's quite a, a big misconception about NHS claims and, and people who are homeless being eligible for NHS um, help. And, and the biggest reason is obviously not having an address. And, and a lot of people feel that if there's no personal address for the patient, then they wouldn't be eligible. So how, how do you get around that kind of situation? So basically having uh, being homeless um, doesn't actually um, exclude someone from claiming benefits or from claiming gas. I mean, say, for example, if they were over 60 or diabetic, then you can automatically um, sort of use the normal sort of gas. Um, Equally, someone could be homeless and still be on something like um, ESA or sort of um, other benefits. So what we would normally do is if they do have a temporary address, you can give that. Or if they don't, you can give a care of address and that might be a day centre or a hostel or something like that. Or um, basically just a sort of like a, a, the benefits agency, maybe where they actually claim the benefits from. So you can put a care of address. So someone can still be no fixed abode and yeah. eligible for GOS services. Yeah. And with, with the diabetic one, did you need a GP address on that? Or is there any way around that? Um, all, all our clinics are set up that if someone doesn't have their own GP, that we do have a local GP service who will um, help them out if they're not registered. So um, what we do is in each of our clinics, we set up that we have GP um, emergency services and all the local sort of um, paths through so we can actually manage the care of that person so say for example at the crisis skylight one there's um, an organization called health e1 which is basically in brick lane and they're a homeless gp service so what they will do is that anybody um, who isn't registered they will see them drop in in the morning or by appointment in the afternoon so what we do is we set all our clinics up that we actually have access to those um, local gp services Excellent. Yeah, so that, that's really interesting to know because I think that can be a barrier initially, can't it, for, for, for the practice. Um, and that can cause quite a stumbling block as to whether you can actually offer that person an eye test or, you know, it's hard, it's hard to understand where you can get that kind of information from sometimes, isn't it? So you can actually process these things. So it's interesting to know that. But speaking about barriers for the patient, so there are a lot of barriers as to why a patient in, in a homeless situation wouldn't be able to access normal optometric care in, in a primary care setting. So what, what kind of barriers, what kind of problems do they face? Uh, many problems, definitely. I mean, it's the sort of inability to sort of deal with sort of bureaucracy and getting sort of like um, services organised. Um, the biggest barrier actually probably is cost. I mean, people, I think opticians, op um, practices will have a very sort of retail appearance to them so people think it's going to cost them a lot of money to go in so I think that's one of the biggest barriers but also there is the psychological barrier that people actually often just don't feel comfortable going into a practice so um, also if someone books an appointment because their lifestyles tend to be more chaotic it's actually the difficulty with keeping that appointment 
but often we find that sort of the majority of the homeless people we see actually do have access to mobile phones so basically um, sort of cheap pay-as-you-go phones are sort of very accessible so often people do have a mobile phone so we can always sort of text them in advance or give them a call if they've forgotten to come into their appointments and often for a homeless person having a mobile is actually one of the only ways that they can actually keep in contact with family and friends because if they don't have an address having a mobile phone sort of it'll be a sort of like a, an essential sort of contact to the outside world yeah definitely it's, it's amazing how it's, everyone has mobile phones isn't it really even, even people in that situation so you have to make the best use of them <laughs> but the, men, the mental health aspects and like you say just that anxiety of, of putting yourself in a position where you're going to be the odd one out aren't you really you're going to be sat in that waiting room full of people who, who are probably going to you know, look at you funny they're going to be almost suspicious of you, you know, which, which is it which is the wrong way to feel but it's, it's a natural response I'd imagine for, for most people but yeah. it, it is a difficult barrier just to put yourself in that position initially isn't it really yes definitely I think the psychological element has a, a sort of a big part to play I mean say for example in um, sort of one of our recent projects um, just over about 18 months ago, we ran a project um, in a dom with a domiciliary service through a couple of um, homeless organisations in East London in the Tower Hamlets borough. And basically um, to have a domiciliary um, NHSI examination, there has to be a barrier for someone to come into high street practice. Mm -hmm. Now, the majority of the time that service is actually used for elderly people in a care home or um, housebound at home. But basically for homeless people, that's a very different situation. For them, there has to be sort of a mental anxiety or a block that actually stops them from going into um, high street practice. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, also from our sort of things on the domiciliary contract, the other barrier was that you have to submit three weeks in advance the list of the people that you're going to see on that day of testing. Now, unfortunately, that may work for a care home or if someone's housebound, but with um, homeless population is often, um, even on the same day, you can go in, sit yourself down, set up your kit in the morning, and you can get a queue of people waiting, but often they might be distracted by the food service or the laundry, or they might even just forget get why they came in and you booking someone three weeks in advance there's a very high rate um, of people not showing for those appointments so actually I think it was something sort of really low like only about seven percent of the people we tested in that pilot were actually eligible for GOS services so basically 93 percent of those were funded privately um, through the charity. Okay yeah and, and do you find that there's quite a a big interest when, once you're in a position to offer these services do you find that people coming to the shelters are quite keen to have an eye test um, it's a mixture. I mean, often having an eye test isn't a high priority for homeless people because they do have more urgent needs going on, like food, um, laundry, um, showering, things like that. So um, we do have quite a high percentage of prescriptions coming through, so probably higher than you would in the general population. And that might be because people are actually seeking us out because they're actually um, sort of they've broken or lost or had their glasses stolen. I mean, we've had prescriptions as high as I think it was sort of like um, something like about minus 20 and plus 17 and regularly getting three, six sills, things like that, because people are desperate to sort of get replacement glasses because they actually um, sort of need them to survive. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you imagine just surviving day to day normally, if, you're, if you've got a minus six still or you've got, you know, a minus 20 yeah. or anything like that, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, even? You know, you get your minus once that come into practice and complain how they can't see anything. Yeah. So, you know, really, to, to be have that kind of refractive error and, and to be in that position could be, you know, extremely daunting, quite dangerous to to a degree as well. Absolutely. I mean, you're in a very high risk environment. And if you can imagine yourself, I mean, say if you've just got a straightforward prescription like minus three, minus four, if you lost those glasses or they were broken, how would you actually survive sort of seeing things down the street, keeping yourself safe? So certainly for um, someone who is experiencing homelessness, it's actually it's essential to their sort of daily um, survival. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So what other kind of eye problems do you come across and what kind of risk factors can sort of in, you know 
determine how, what kind of ocular problems you'll see? Um, certainly um, people, unfortunately, because of their um, sort of chaotic lifestyle, they often have quite poor nutrition. So their general health actually seems to be um, sort of quite poor. Um, hygiene levels can be difficult. So we often get a lot of people with sort of anterior eye problems, sort of like blepharitis, dry eye and things like that. Um, also, smoking rates are three times higher among the homeless population. So um, potentially um, sort of retinal um, sort of problems, toxicity of smoke. So um, because people tend to have those chaotic lives and is a more exposed life potentially outdoors more, sort of the more common things we tend to find tend to be things like cataract and as saying blepharitis. Um, also a higher rate of retinal problems so um, say if someone is assaulted um, so sort of traumatic sort of retinal problems uh, muscular balance problems because of trauma as well so it does tend to be that they have sort of slightly higher um, sort of risk levels of those sort of types of um, problems also if someone has got general health problems so say for example they are diabetic or they have high blood pressure and they are um, experiencing homelessness often their control of those general health problems is um, sort of a lot um, sort of worse so there is the potential for sight-threatening problems from that so um, sort of hemorrhaging um, from diabetes high blood pressure because they're not they're not able to control them sufficiently how, how does how does it affect um, with regards to referrals as well so if you're seeing these kind of problems in practice and you know, in, in any normal situation, you'd make a referral. Do, do referrals get processed in the same way? Do, do they tend to follow up on the referrals? Is, is there a, you know... Yeah, that's... that's who's often, uh, sorry, who's often that even patients in, in general practice can be reluctant to go to the referral appointments and you often have to chase them up and make sure they've actually gone. So is, is it a similar situation? Do you find that you refer in and people aren't going to have these problems dealt with? Um, at the moment, I would say we don't know, but I'd say that there is a higher probability that you refer someone um, from our clinics and actually um, that referral never gets actioned. We have got a project ongoing at the moment, which is um, a referral um, sort of um, follow-up pathway and we've got um, a group of optometrists um, a lot of the optometrists actually colleagues from Moorfield who are sort of um, basically um, sort of taking on the follow-up of those referrals so say for example if we are referring someone to the um, sort of the eye hospital what the optometrist can do is actually to support that patient through that process um, we've also linked with another homeless charity called Groundswell and they're basically a peer-led service and what they have is people who used to be homeless and they are aware of the um, sort of the difficulties that people are experiencing and what they do is they actually support people through that service so um, this is all sort of a very recent thing so we don't have the findings of the first sort of um, um, part of that project but we are hoping firstly to actually um, be able to sort of um, monitor how many referrals are actually happening but also the ones that do slip through the net is actually to follow up with those people and enable them to get the sort of the um, secondary health care that they need yeah definitely yeah definitely and like you say initially there's barriers to attending that in an initial appointment in the first place and then going on to a second appointment and you're going to have all those same barriers again which makes it difficult and again that whole anxiety that whole mental health aspect as well in, in putting yourself in that position and going into that kind of environment so what other kind of problems can affect the homeless people in terms of you know ocular conditions and things like that and, and just generally coming into practice and things like that I mean, the majority of the problems, I mean, the highest percentage of problems is actually refractive error. I mean, we find that I think it's 35% of the people that we see coming into um, our clinics could effectively be registered blind with or visually impaired without having their visual correction. So the most straightforward um, sort of problem is actually refractive error. So if you think of in the UK, we do still have people who are effectively uh, visually impaired because they don't have their um, sort of correct spectacle prescription 
so going from there then the sort of the, the it's a mixture of things as saying sort of like the cataract because people live a very outdoors lifestyle with very poor nutrition that tends to affect so they've got higher uv exposure being outside more um, higher rates of cataract um, glaucoma potentially um, we're not quite sure at the moment on that one but certainly much higher rates as the saying of sort of like ocular motor problems just basically from being assaulted or um, sort of it could be that they um, have a higher rate of problems um, with sort of their sort of visual balance so yeah there's there's a whole mixture of problems on there so do you find that there's a higher incidence of things like substance abuse alcoholism drug abuse that kind of thing and, and how does that impact on on, on your ocular health um, certainly the rates of um, substance abuse are a lot higher and that can be a combination of reasons it could either be that that was one of the um, sort of initial problems that actually um, sort of um, caused the sort of situation of homelessness in the start I mean often for most people it's actually a sort of a real combination of issues that actually spirals people down to that sort of situation that they're in and actually one of the most common problems um, sort of with um, um, sort of issues of homelessness is actually relationship breakup so I think it was 41% of the um, population I think some Mungos did a big study with um, people using their services and they found that um, as saying 41% it was relationship breakup so if you have a couple in a flat or a house if the relationship breaks up then one of them has to move out if there's children involved then commonly the um, the woman will tend to stay in the accommodation with the children and the man has to move out I mean I did even hear um, sort of a few years ago about um, a dispensing optician who had split up with his wife and he moved out and unfortunately couldn't afford two sets of accommodation and it was only about sort of three or four weeks down the line when he'd been sleeping in his car using the local supermarket to sort of wash um, that he actually confided in his colleagues about the situation that he was in and often the difficulty is is that people don't know what to do who to turn to and um, that sort of situation spirals down and often um, substances can actually be a coping mechanism so if you have someone that's actually got to that sort of desperate stage in their life that sort of things are sort of they are losing control of things um, is that it can actually be a coping mechanism whether it be sort of drugs or alcohol so certainly there are higher rates among the homeless population so it can either be that it was one of the initial causes or it can actually be something that um, they have um, sort of slipped into because of their circumstances and so yes smoking alcohol they all have their um, sort of impact on the eye as well as the rest of the body sort of depending on the toxic levels they're taking in so alcohol drugs smoking all can have a toxic effect on the eye definitely yeah how, how does that affect your your test process well the majority of centers that we are in actually um, the people coming into us are not under the influence of their substance um, the only time that will be different is that when we run services like the crisis christmas so each year we have the christmas service which runs from the 23rd to the 29th of december and there we see probably about sort of 300 people in a week there is one particular centre within their group of um, places and they often have about 10 different centres across London um, is they'll have one called a wet centre and that wet centre is basically someone who is um, sort of in a situation that they are addicted to a substance and whether that be alcohol or drugs and actually they can't they they're in the stage that they need to be sort of rehabilitated and in rehab to wean off those substances but they can't do that immediately so we will actually go in and test within those centers and often in those situations you actually just literally have to test depending on the um sort of um the approach that the patient comes to you so it might be that someone um, won't say anything to you can't say anything to you and you're basically just sort of um, managing how you can so also pupil size can be something that's sort of quite different I mean if you've got someone that's on 
um, alcohol often their pupil is sort of very dilated so you get a very good retinal view whereas some yeah. drugs may constrict the pupil and therefore may restrict your view quite considerably so i think um, basically the same as if you're dealing with people with different abilities in practice you would do the same thing for people who are homeless is that as i saying literally the majority of the time that we're seeing people is that you are seeing people who are not under the influence of their um, substance but if you are then you are working in that situation um, out of choice and you just sort of um, manage the situation as you are I was saying it could be that someone has a high prescription but they have broken their glasses or they've lost them and it's just um, it might be sometimes you do a quick ret a quick ophthalmoscopy and you're just doing the best to provide the service sort of almost in an emergency way to sort of tide someone through that sort of really difficult time until they can be rehabilitated through rehab and then maybe you get a more accurate refraction result at the end yeah do, do you tend to find that being in that test room environment for a homeless person do you feel that that can that can be a trigger of anxiety and, and, and fear being in that kind of one-on-one -on -one situation with a stranger yeah, certainly. I mean, any, any member of the population knows that actually going in for an eye examination can be um, something that brings anxiety. I mean, I've certainly been in situations where I've had seven people faint in my career. So it's basically <laughs> do get really anxious. Not that I make them scared, but the majority of those around contact <laughs> and spitting. Um, yeah. And it's basically that you have to sort of work your, you'll have to sort of like change your routine around the way that that person feels. Sometimes it might be that you have to leave the door open or they bring a friend in or sort of like sometimes you even need to test people in stages. So it might be that you only get a small part of the test done and you're building a relationship with that person so yeah. that um, you actually you just literally have to manage the situation as it is. I and mean, also another difficulty sometimes is actually language barrier. I mean, basically, you may get someone who doesn't speak particularly good English, and that might be either sort of someone who is living here, resident here, or um, someone who's um, a refugee. So we have um, sort of had people sort of who are, say, for example, some we had once where we had a family come over from Syria, and they literally just had to leave. And they left all their belongings there. And the two children both wore glasses, but of course had no glasses. And it was going to take them about a month to get all the registration for um, sort of NHS services here. So we carried out an eye examination and got some glasses just to sort of tide them over. So you do have lots of different sort of situations. And with those, you can either use a friend or family to translate or some, I mean, if you've got your own mobile phone, um, the translation apps are quite fantastic. You can literally put in a question, translate it, get the patient. It's a little bit slower to do it that way, but you, you can get around it. So yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So what kind of advice would you give to uptimers and DOs in your general high street practice if, if, homeless people, if a homeless person came in asking for an eye test? What would be your kind of advice? Uh, first thing is actually not to assume that they're not eligible for NHS services because it might be that actually um, they are eligible for a GOSS eye examination. So it's actually just sort of talk to that person. I think it's just being sort of really open with them, finding out um, sort of what their circumstances are if they are on any benefits if they are on benefits then you can under normal circumstances carry out a GOSS eye examination um, one of the other difficulties we find is often people sort of fall between the cracks if they've lost or broken their glasses so currently for adults um, they are only entitled to a, a GOSS voucher three every um, two years mm -hmm. so if someone breaks or loses their glasses um, then unfortunately um, they have to wait till that sort of interval before they can get another voucher so it is difficult so if someone is eligible for GOSS services then please do use those GOSS services if they don't have a fixed address, um, if they've got a care of address, if they're a sofa surfer, which basically means they have no fixed abode, but they might be sleeping on the couch of sort of family or friends or something like that, use that care of address. If they are someone who is sleeping on the street, then you can give the address of a day centre or hostel or GP service or somewhere where they go. You can use that. Um, if they're not eligible for GOSS, then um, that's a very different um, sort of thing. We have some practices 
who um, have actually set up a, a local service with their um, sort of local homeless um, services. And what they will do is maybe once a month, they will go in and deliver um, an eye examination. We've had other practices who will open their practice one afternoon a month. And then yeah. the homeless people from the local area can actually come in, access the services free. And they are effectively paying for the eye examination themselves. They are providing that free of charge. And some of those have set up contacts with local labs and frame manufacturers that they've actually provided the um, glasses and the lenses free for that service. So it's a mixture of things. I mean, from our side of things, we have um, sort of a whole range of options that we can support practices through. Um, setting up something with their local home services there was another organization up in nottingham where four practices got together and actually between the four of them they were running a service once a month and they actually now have still kept that going for about the last few years which is fantastic yeah. so um yeah so there are options out there um from our side of things in the long term we would really love to get um, sort of regulations um, changed. So, I mean, the um, sort of best thing we could get is actually that homelessness was opened up as being an eligibility for GOSS services in the first place, because yeah. all the people you're seeing have low income. So if we could get GOSS, mm -hmm. equally, if we could get a repair voucher for people experiencing homelessness, as you could do for someone who has epilepsy or medical conditions and things like that that would be fantastic as well so we are working with nhs england unfortunately things keep coming along to get in between those discussions brexit coronavirus things like that so we will keep those um, sort of dialogues open and see what we can do in the um, sort of long term but in the short term unfortunately if goss isn't available it's just charity is the other option so yeah yeah, definitely. But it's, it's, it's a worthwhile thing to do, isn't it? Definitely. And although, obviously, any, any practice needs to make money and any practice needs to be remunerated for, for their services, but if, if you can spare one afternoon a month to provide these kind of services, then you know, it's, it's a huge, hugely beneficial thing for the community. So, interesting you mentioned, obviously, the current COVID situation. So how, how is that impacting what you do and, and the homeless kind of population in general? actually for what we do at the moment we have closed all our clinics um, we actually probably closed at the sort of earlier stage than everyone else um, two clinics shut really early one of them because um, pretty much all our volunteers in that clinic were actually over about 70 because we have a lot of people who have retired and are coming back to um, the optical service to sort of give back so we shut that purely for the um, health of those volunteers um, we also had another clinic um, close sort of pretty much straight away purely because the um, homeless um, centre provided a lot of accommodation and from their side of things they wanted to reduce the risk of the virus being brought in so they shut down all external services um, so that they could minimise the um, sort of people that were coming into contact with the homeless people that were residents in their centre and then within a very short period of time um, we shut down all our services um, basically I mean with homeless people because they um, sort of are very um, sort of um, poor general health conditions they are very vulnerable to picking up any sort of um, um, health problems around I mean generally in a, sort of a normal sort of non-coronavirus time um, homeless people are more likely to access A&E services because they don't access primary health care. So yeah. they often end up with health conditions that actually get to a very um, sort of critical stage because they haven't um, been accessing normal sort of um, primary health care. Yeah. So and this situation just makes that thing much worse is that sort of they are very vulnerable, low immune systems, very prone to picking up viruses and for them to be sort of more severely affected. They've often got a lot of other comorbidities happening. Um, also, um, the other side of things is actually the physical distancing. I mean, because when you look at sort of like hostels and sort of day centres and things like that, because people are in very close um, sort of um, physical distance from each other, that physical distancing um, sort of can't really happen. So a lot of those services have shut down. Um, so... 
thankfully i think it was on the 23rd of march the um, covid um, homeless um, policy came out and actually what they have been doing since then is actually bringing homeless people into sort of hotels and things like that so that they can actually self-isolate and what they've been doing is screening and separating people who potentially do have the coronavirus as opposed to those that don't to actually help sort of reduce that um, infection spread. But certainly it's a very difficult time. So from our side of things as a charity, what we're doing is we're working behind the scenes. We had been um, working on a series of projects to um, sort of get a more computerized streamlined system for our sort of volunteers coming online um, for volunteer training and things like that. Um, So we've been working behind the scenes, um, sort of getting that set up. Um, We're also looking at um, sort of how we go forward, other clinics that we potentially um, are looking for, um, sort of other roles we're going to be creating in the future. We're going to have a new um, sort of um, a new clinic lead role, which is going to be um, sort of advertised as soon as we come out the other side of this. Um, Also, um, last year, we um, had a project called the Homeless Voices Project. Um, We we linked together with a company who um, have um, experts by experience. So basically, the people who used to be homeless, and they actually now have um, sort of um, stabilised their situation, and they are now housed, working. And what we did is with the um, experts by experience, we did um, a series of um, focus groups and um, 170, I think, questionnaires. And what we're looking at is how people sort of experience eye care and general health care. So we're writing up the sort of the um, findings of that study from there. So we're linking up with some of the statisticians at Moorfields and we're looking at the results of that. So we're working behind the scenes on sort of... Um, basically going forward is getting our systems in place so as soon as we can get up and running again we will be out there delivering the service where it's needed we can provide replacement spectacles so if someone does lose or break their glasses and we've tested them before or they've got a copy of their current prescription we can supply emergency glasses so we're doing just a basic essential care but other than that no testing or anything at all at the moment yeah definitely it's interesting like say how so it's when you're in the frontline position and you're actively doing that kind of work and you're seeing those patients from day to day, there's also a lot of background work that needs to be done. And, and especially like you say, in terms of research, in terms of statistics and understanding the patterns, who's actually come to see you, the, there's so much that needs to be recorded and analysed. So it's, I suppose it's difficult for you in that position to do that. So having a team and having that kind of support behind you to get that information is, is, is really critical going forward, isn't it? Because you want to be able to adapt and you know provide provide even, an even better service in the future so this is important definitely so what what are your big plans going ahead then because obviously at the moment we've a, a lot of charities are struggling at the moment aren't they because people aren't able to get out and fundraise and stuff like that so what what kind of things have you been getting up to and what kind of plans have you got for future fundraising Definitely still fundraising. I did. Uh, we had the 2.6 challenge um, the weekend just gone. And I think there were at least, I think, three of us doing um, sort of mammoth challenges. Basically, this was because the London Marathon didn't actually happen. So we had um, Alison Gordon um, basically did 26 games of table tennis within the day. Um, we had a lovely lady, um, Ella Oldfield, who wrote or canoed something like 26 miles up a river, which I'm amazed yeah. about. I've got no upper body strength. <laughs> and then uh, myself, I did a big cycle challenge. Um, I don't know if anyone else is into indoor cycling, but there's, a, there's a, an indoor platform called Swift, which um, has a lot of the um, sort of traditional sort of like Tour de France stuff. And their big climb yeah. is something called Alp de Zwift, which is um, the same virtual equivalent of a mountain called Alp d'Huez. Um, in the um, French Alps and basically um, husband my husband devised the um, challenge which was a really big challenge which is 22,600 meters of climbing um, on Alpe de Zwift and it took me four hours and 43 minutes to do that and um, yes so I was I was shattered on Sunday so yeah so we are still fundraising behind the scenes we've got um uh, a um, sort of like a reading um, challenge going at the moment so if anyone would like to log on to our website 
they're sort of very welcome if they've got the spare time and they're reading some um, sort of lovely books then please let us know what books you're reading set a challenge for your family and friends and things like that so get the children involved um, but we're definitely sort of fundraising sort of behind the scenes constantly and as I say working on our systems to sort of keep us going but certainly we do have big ambitions um, currently we think we see probably only about sort of like maybe um, sort of nine ten percent of the homeless population in the UK and we want to increase that um, quite significantly so we want to increase the number of clinics we have so if anyone's interested in volunteering they can certainly sign up go through our application process at the moment so we are still open for all of that um, and get all the registration process sorted so that when we are up and running um, definitely they can come and sort of volunteer and visit our clinics um we'd like to i mean in the long term ideally like to have a bus which is sort of fully equipped with um sort of a consulting room dispensing area so that yeah, we could move that idea. around take our services to homeless people so yeah we've got big ambitions so yes we're definitely um sort of planning for the future brilliant excellent i'll see we've got we've got a big plan hopefully I care Glasgow is going to go ahead. Hopefully COVID will be all done and dusted by January. Yeah. Um, but we're happy to have Vision Care for Homeless People as our chosen charity of the event. So when we do our little awards ceremony on the night and our drinks reception, we'll be having a little fundraiser, a little charity auction, a few prizes, a few little raffles and things like that. Maybe a bit of a casino. So we'll hope to raise a few quid for you as well because it's, it's a fantastic charity. I mean, I first heard about it at Uchfair. Uh, just wandering around, bumped into uh, one of your colleagues there, and it, it was—it sort of surprised me that there was a dedicated charity for this because it's something that never really occurred to me. Uh, obviously, the, the, you always expect to see homeless charities, but I did never think of the link between optics and homeless people. Um, but looking into it, like I say it's a fantastic—it's a fantastic charity, and it, you know it's really, really rewarding what you do. Uh, and it's making a real difference in people's lives. So, you know, you've done a fantastic job, Elaine. It's, I think everyone that knows you feels that, that a lot of pride that the fact that you set this up. So, you know, it's fantastic and you should be recognised for all your efforts. So, and it's amazing. Well done. It's great fun. I mean, basically all our volunteers absolutely love coming into the clinics every day. And it, it literally is. I mean, just the sort of smiles on the faces of the people that you see coming through we have people that come back to us. We had a chap in our Shepherd's Bush clinic who um, was collecting his glasses and he said that he'd been devastated that he couldn't sort of find work because he couldn't read a computer screen. His eyes were really painful and sore. So he collected his glasses, went off to his next interview at the job centre and then returned a few weeks later to say that he had a full-time job and was working as a um, sort of kitchen porter. So it literally is changing lives so it is quite fantastic i mean everybody knows how precious sight is and um so to your physical and mental well-being sort of being able to see well and how you can perform in life but if you imagine that you didn't have that as well as all the other sort of um sort of barriers that homeless people have to face is that we just need to get that service out to them but as i'm saying i really can't emphasize enough about how rewarding is volunteering in the clinics because you meet some really interesting people from all backgrounds of life Um, we've met people who were accountants airline pilots ex-services but it could be anyone from any walk of life so it's just the circumstances that have led them to that so yeah it is it's a really great thing to do love it yeah definitely definitely like i say it can happen to anyone can't it so you know it's something that everyone should be aware of and everyone should try and do their best to help anyone in that situation it's just that it's just such a shame that we have to have charities for this kind of thing and it's not something that that can just be supported through normal uh, gos services and things like that so hopefully that's something that can change in the future but Yeah. yeah but hopefully there's less of a need for what you do in the future as well. So that would be yeah. a, a big step forward as well, definitely. definitely. So before we finish off, Lane, is there anyone that you want to say thank you to out there? Any, any companies or any, any suppliers that have supported you in the process and in terms of supplying the glasses or anything like that? 
Uh, we have a huge sort of list of people that I would love to sort of focus on. I mean, the support and the love that we get in the optical industry is actually quite fantastic. Um, basically, each one of our eight clinics is actually supported by a different lab for the glazing. So um, sort of remembering some of them off the top of my head, we have Essilor, Shamir, Kent Optic, Horizon Optic, Caledonian Optical, um, I apologise for the ones that I haven't remembered. Um, frames, we get the frames donated by um, spec savers. Equipment, some of the equipment manufacturers, absolutely amazing. Again, off the top of my head, the main ones, Topcon, um, who else? Um, oh, I, basically, my brain's going, um, Zeiss, Birmingham Optical, um, Keeler, I mean, you name it, everybody is absolutely fantastic. And the support um, from practices as well with their volunteers. Some practices will sort of like give their um, staff sort of like maybe half day or a day off that they can actually come in and work in the practice. Um, people doing sponsored events for us. So um, companies like Performance Finance, they do um, sort of like um, their sort of like corporate fundraising. They've done some amazing events for us, including sort of like a lot of their team doing a huge skydive. And the one that I was really most impressed on was a firewalk. So um, they've raised thousands for us. But sort of like the optical industry is absolutely fantastic. It's a brilliant community that comes together. And you can see at the moment how it's pulling together for the coronavirus times. And yeah, uh, yeah it is absolutely superb. And I'm just really proud to be a part of it. So, yeah, thank you all. So I apologise if I haven't mentioned it. <laughs> There's, there's one apart from that I can think of is out of the box optics who did the optiversity yes. challenge. Yeah. That was really cool. Yeah, so yeah. So we, we couldn't actually make it to the to the event. We donated a couple of tickets to to Ikea yeah. for when these uh, when the winners qualify. Um, yeah. But yeah, that looked like a great show. That did. So I think they raised quite a lot of money as well. For, yes. For yeah. No, that's been going a few years now, and the number of teams is increasing. Also, CET side of things. So the ICT and um, so basically the conference up in Glasgow, really fantastic. So, yeah, Peter Charlesworth and his team, absolutely superb. Also, the professional bodies. I mean, like FODO have given us a lot of support over the years with our sort of like policy side of things and actually supporting our um, sort of negotiation and um, work with yeah. um, NHS England. So, yeah, absolutely. So, and actually the team of trustees and the volunteers, I mean, certainly we couldn't get anywhere without those and our staff as well. So it's a brilliant team. And as I say, I'm just really proud of it and just love being a part of it. So, yeah. So what, what we can do is, if there's anyone that you feel you've missed off the list, if you email them to me, yes. and I'll, put, I'll pop a list on the screen, and I'll put everyone in the comments as well, so everyone can get a shout out then as well, so we don't miss anyone. Brilliant. <laughs> so that's, that's it for today. I mean, it's been really interesting chatting to you. Like I say, doing amazing work, so keep up the good work. And then we'll, we'll definitely be seeing you in January. Yes, thank you very much. Brilliant conference. I love the conference this year. I thought for all members of the practice, whether it be sort of optometrist, dispensers, mm -hmm. clinical assistants, I think it's a fantastic programme. So loved being out there and it's um, a pleasure to go back again next year, definitely. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So yeah, we'll be definitely be there. I care. 2021 in uh, January up in Glasgow. So yeah, look forward to seeing you there. So yes, thanks for everyone for listening. Hopefully you all enjoyed it. Um, we're going to be recording another episode tomorrow. Uh, which is going to be all about COVID-19 and how it's affecting the optical industry and the challenges that we're going to face going forward and post-COVID, how everything's going to change. That's going to be a really interesting one too. So yeah, so thanks everyone. We'll see you all soon. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Bye.